Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to do something after his comprehensive exams. And it took a really long time for me to get here today in front of my microphone with my notes open and ready to tell you about this next part of the history of coal. Now, first, there's just, you know, some personal stuff. I was biking through San Francisco and I was biking a little bit too confidently and I maneuvered my bike into a streetcar rail and flipped, you know, head over heels in the middle of rush hour traffic and hurt my wrist. I wasn't like really badly injured, but I've had my right arm in some sort of a splint or a sling for, you know, maybe four weeks. And that's, you know, been annoying and painful and I've been really grumpy and I haven't wanted to sit down and read books about steam engines and coal as much as I normally do. And also I've been thinking about the next stage of my academic career. I am going to England for research. I'm actually going this Sunday. I'm still going to pump out podcasts. Well, I mean, I'm going to try to still pump out podcasts, but this long post-oral summer vacation is about to end, and I'm going to have to switch gears and do the next big part of my academic work. And I'm kind of scared. I'm, you know, not really ready to go off and do this. I've never been to an archive before. I don't know what it's going to be like. Um, My project is you know, about three quarters of the way baked, but it could be much, much, much better. And I'm really cognizant of that. I'm really worried that I'm going to go off here and do something that that means that my academic career is over. I probably won't. I'll probably do fine. I'll probably do better than fine, but it still makes me nervous. And that nervousness has been distracting from the podcast. But there's also a thematic reason why I have been kind of dragging my heels on this podcast today. Today, I'm going to be telling the story of this steam engine. And I found it kind of boring. The books have been trudges. I mean, it's one of the most played out stories of all of 18th century British history. If you took a British history class, you probably read about all of these people I'm going to be talking about today and heard the broad outlines of the story. The story of, you know, the Newcomen steam engine and James Watt and all of these people who, you know, kickstarted the Industrial Revolution. Some of the books that I read were incredibly technical and, you know, what we might call uh, wonky. There were pages and pages and pages of plates about technical diagrams of valves and gears and, you know, various weird little contraptions. And that's just not my brain. I just don't pay attention to the way that boiler design changed in the 19th century. But more than that, this podcast has been trying to be about something else. It's been trying to take people out of the center of the story of the Industrial Revolution and the economic growth that happened after and put objects like mines, iron, and, you know, of course, coal into the center of the story and see how it looks. And it's been hard for me to do that with this 
chapter of the story, the chapter on the steam engine, because it's a story of inventions. It's a story where if I didn't talk about these, you know, big name geniuses, I would feel like I wasn't giving you the full picture. But if I do talk about the big geniuses, then I have to talk about, you know, people and boiler design, even though I don't want to. So I'm not sure that I've gotten the balance right in this episode. I'm not sure that I've really put our main protagonist into the center. So let's start with a little bit of a recap so we can see why the steam engine matters so much. By the beginning of the 18th century, people in Britain had discovered how to use coal to do a ton of things. First, and maybe most importantly, people replaced their home heating with coal. They used to heat their houses with wood, which was expensive because there were more and more people on the island of Great Britain, and there were fewer and fewer forests. However, there were really ample coal deposits, which meant that everybody could heat their homes with coal. But also, people started to realize that they could use coal to make things. Before the 18th century, they made things that, you know, you could boil easily, like soap and beer and salt. In the 18th century, people slowly started to figure out how to use coal to make bigger things, like iron. And this allowed iron to be much cheaper than ever before, and that allowed people to make more metal goods. And all of this was super important, but if you notice, it kind of is simple. All you're doing is replacing fire of one kind, you know, fire from charcoal or wood, with fire of another kind, you know, fire from coal. And all of the technical developments are just kind of ways of getting around the peculiarities of burning a fossil fuel rather than a, you know, organic fuel. And this doesn't explain the world that we live in today a world where cheap energy is everywhere. I mean, the thing that we're trying to tell the story of is when you put your energy goggles on and look around you and see a world made out of energy, you know, energy is so much more than heat. Sure, you might have an electric heater keeping you warm, but energy runs the motors on the robots that make our clothes, our shoes, our books, our pans. Energy runs the little podcatcher that you're listening to this on. My, my voice is converted to you from some sort of power plant that might be run by coal. Energy, you know, feeds the electric blenders that you use to make your kale smoothie, and energy goes into the fertilizer that makes the kale that you then put into your body that you use to make your thoughts. Energy even, you know, lights our homes. Energy does so much more than just heat. And so the steam engine is a really important part of this long story, because it's the first stage of people realizing that you could use heat from coal to do work. Now, if you have taken a high school physics class, this doesn't seem like that big of a deal. We know because of the laws of thermodynamics that energy of all kinds is kind of the same. The kinetic energy, the energy of movement, is just another form of heat energy. That electricity, the energy of like weird little electrons moving between things, is in a really important way convertible to the energy of wind. But people in the 18th century didn't know this. And so these developments of figuring out that heat could be used to do work were really drastically important. 
Now, if you've heard the story of the steam engine from, you know, those other history podcasts that I know that you're listening to, or even from a teacher in high school or college or from a book that you've read, you might have noticed a you know, weird little peculiarity that people usually paper over. Now, on the one hand, the history of the steam engine is usually, you know, described in incredibly triumphant language. Um, I found this example from, I think, the 1830s from a guy giving a report to Parliament about James Watt, the you know, improver of the steam engine who we're going to learn way too much about in a couple of minutes. So this guy's going up and talking to Parliament, and he says that basically when the apocalypse happens, when the final day of judgment comes and everybody is, you know, arraigned along the, you know, big book of judgment, James Watt will, quote, appear before the grand jury of the inhabitants of the two worlds, Everyone will behold him, with the help of his steam engine penetrating in a few weeks into the bowels of the earth, to depths which before his time could not have been reached without an age of the most toilsome labor, excavating vast mines, clearing them in a few minutes of the immense volume of water which daily inundates them, and extracting from the virgin soil of the inexhaustible mineral treasures which nature has deposited." Unquote. In this panegyric, uh, James Watt is also seen twisting up the cable of a man-o'-war, lifting an anchor out of the oceans. He also, with the same power, twists cotton and brings, quote, swamps into cultivation, which leads to, quote, the population being well supplied in food with clothing and with fuel, which will rapidly increase. The population will, by degrees, cover with elegant mansions every part of the earth, even those which might justly have been termed the steppes of Europe, and which the barrenness of ages seem to contemn to be forever the exclusive domains of the wild beasts. So, you know, this is getting really high praise. Not only is James Watt, you know, making cotton fabrics and clearing mines, he's turning, you know, barren wastelands into civilized mansions. Um, he says, quote, by the heap of a few bushels of coal, man will vanquish the elements. He will play with calms and contrary winds and storms. I mean, this is really huge praise. And we often fall into this narrative of massive triumph, of overcoming nature, of this one big idea shifting the balance of the world from one in which humans are at the mercy of nature to one in which humans control nature. I mean, one of the books that I read for this is called something like The Greatest Idea That Ever Was. People go crazy for this stuff. But I just want to point out something strange about this story of triumph. Sure, we can all agree that James Watt and his magic engine were really, really cool. We can all agree that James Watt worked really hard and he might have made some of the best, you know, engineering leaps that any engineer has ever made in the history of engineering. But that still doesn't exactly explain why, in the long history of the world, it took until the 1780s for the steam engine to be perfected. You know, it wasn't even perfected in the 1780s, just made good enough that it could be used in a bunch of different applications. And you can see this tension because when you read those books about the steam engine, when you lift them up, the first chapter is all about 
steam engines before the Industrial Revolution. You get stories of a Greek man called Hero of Alexandria, who in the first century AD made an early steam engine called an aleopile, uh, also known as Hero's engine. And this is like a big uh, cylinder that has a bunch of, you know, little tubes sticking out of it. And when you heat the water in the cylinder with a fire, it spins around. It is a functional steam engine. It turns heat into motion. Um, in the 17th century, after scientists started to understand that they could create a vacuum, people started to experiment with a vacuum because it turned out to have a ton of power, a lot more power than anybody could have realized. Um, so in the middle of the 17th century, a German scientist called, I'm going to butcher this, Otto von Guericke, uh, got these two copper hemispheres that were about 20 inches in diameter, and he sealed them together with a vacuum. He evacuated all the air out so that it was, you know, linked together. And then he would, you know, tie a rope to each hemisphere and attach a rope to a bunch of horses and try to get the horses to tear them apart. 20 horses, 20 horses could not, you know, remove the power of the vacuum holding these two hemispheres together. That is a lot of power. Similarly, there were a bunch of really early steam engines. The Savory engine, for instance, in the late 17th century that didn't lead to Watt's great invention. So the question is, why did it happen in Britain in the late 18th century? And if you've listened to this podcast with, you know, about one-eighth of your attention, you know the answer. It's because coal. Steam engines needed a lot of cheap energy, especially in the early years when they weren't, you know, exactly perfected yet. And for that cheap energy, you needed a lot of cheap coal. The only place that really had a lot of cheap coal and had a lot of people using that cheap coal to heat stuff was Britain. Now enough of this really long prologue, let's get into actual usable steam engines. The first steam engine that really kind of worked was the savory engine, which was basically just like a big, you know, egg that people could heat up and it would pump a little bit of water. Now we're not going to talk about it too much because the differences between that and the other engines is really technical and because it wasn't actually that useful. Because of quirks of atmospheric pressure, it couldn't actually pump water up more than I think 27 feet. And if you got two of them together, it couldn't pump water up more than 40 feet. And because most of the drainage problems in mines happened around the 90 foot mark, it wasn't actually that important, except for like this long history of technology that I don't think you're going to be that interested in by the end of this technology rich episode. The big one is Thomas Newcomen. Thomas Newcomen was an ironmonger in Dartmouth. Uh, he, you know, made iron goods and he supplied iron goods for all of the cold mines in Staffordshire. So we'd go from all these coal mines to coal mines making, you know, the chains that they would use on their winches, you know, making the little tools that the miners would use to cut coal off of the uh, uh, off of the the face of the mine. And so he knew the problems that people had with drainage. And he also knew that you could use the vacuum created by condensing steam to do 
a lot of work. Remember the power that that, you know, big hemispherical copper thing had when it had a vacuum between it. 20 horses couldn't pull them apart. And he wanted to use that power to pump mines. And he made over, you know, a decade a working steam engine that used the power of boiling water, boiled, of course, by coal, to move a pump. How did this work? Well, first, you needed to have a coal fire that heated a bunch of water in a boiler. Now, this might, you know, not seem like one of the most important parts of this invention, but it was actually really important because it's hard to make coal light for a long period of time, and it was only because British people use coal so often in heating their homes that Thomas Newcomen had access to uh, clay tiles that could withstand the heat, for instance, and had access to the knowledge of, you know, the proper grate mechanism that was needed to keep a nice steady heat on this boiler. So you have this boiler that's being heated by coal. Now, then you have a little valve that opens up and lets the steam from this boiling water go up into a separate tank called a piston or condenser, depending, you know, which uh, steam engine that you're using. And this steam fills up the tank. When the tank is filled, then another valve opens up and sprays a jet of cold water into the tank. All of a sudden, all of that steam condenses. And as you know from high school science, the area filled by steam is much greater than the area filled by water. So all of that uh, uh, area condenses. And that pulls a piston down. And that piston is attached by a series of rods to whatever it is you want to do work, a pump maybe. And this rod has a big heavy weight at the other end of it. You know, when you see oil derricks going up and down, if you've ever been driving around LA or, you know, seen a movie about it, uh, those pumps have big gigantic, you know, hammerheads on the end of them. This weight pushes the piston back up so that the uh, 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 tank can be refilled with steam. So this is how you get a pumping action. Uh, the boiling water releases steam into the tank. The steam is cooled by a jet of cold water. This condensation drags a piston down, which in turn, through a series of you know levers and rods, pushes a pump up. And this pump has a ton of power. The Newcomen engine was perfect for the mining industry. Mines were getting deeper and deeper and deeper as people used up the more accessible coal steams on the surface of the earth. And as they got deeper, they filled up with water because, you know, the earth isn't just some slick surface. It seeps water into it, percolates water into it like a big gigantic sponge. And as you get too deep, you hit an underground stream or a spring or just, you know, a bunch of waterlogged soil that can fill up a mine shaft incredibly quickly. And so once you reached about 90 feet, most mines needed to be pumped. As we learned from our uh, episode on the coal industry in the 18th century a couple weeks ago, usually this was done by animal power. Pumps were run by horses, which were expensive, or by people, which were not super powerful. And the Newcomen engine offered a great solution. 
it could run on small coal, on little tiny bits of coal, like coal dust and crappy little, you know, uh, uh, lumps that were left over when the bigger, more valuable coal was taken off of the coal seam. This stuff was usually just thrown out, but the Newcomen engine could run on that. And it was basically free pumping power once you got the big, massive, hulking iron machine set up. Now, these could be up to 50 feet tall when they were fully developed. So, you know, it's not a small undertaking to get them set up. But once set up, if you're at a coal seam, you could run them, you know, almost for free because coal is cheap and right there. But the Newcomen engine wasn't that great when coal wasn't that cheap because it was really inefficient. It would not get one of those Energy Star uh, certificates that you get on appliances these days. It burned through coal. People didn't know what they were doing. It was cool enough that you could pump water out of the mine without using a horse gin or something and killing all the horses that you had. To get Newcomen's engine to spread beyond coal seams, it needed to be improved. Newcomen improved his engine himself over the course of a decade, and other people jumped in and made their own improvements over the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, although it was still uh, mostly used in places with cheap coal. Eventually, the Newcomen engine was used for more than just pumping water out of mines, although it was always just used for pumping up and down motion. One of the coolest ways that the Newcomen engine was used was to run water wheels. This sounds a little crazy. Water wheels are uh, really useful because the circular regular motion of the water wheel can be used to power a mill, a machine, um, maybe a mill for grinding something, or maybe if you're around, you know, 1780s and there's a bunch of developments in the cotton industry used to spin and weave cotton. The problem with a water wheel is that the streams that powered them did not flow evenly throughout the year. I mean, in times of floods, they would go really, really fast, which might not be great. And in winter, when there was a lot of frost and ice, they might not even flow at all. And if you're a enterprising capitalist who has a you know new fancy cotton mill set up, you want that to run as often as you would like. The Newcomen engine was used sometimes as ancillary power to these water wheels. When the flow of water wasn't, you know, fast enough to actually run the machines, you could use a Newcomen engine to pump water from the endpoint way back over to the beginning and get a little bit of extra boost. So there's a funny story of how this might be used. So in the 1780s, uh, in this place called Papawick, real name of a place, there was a group of merchants called the Robinsons who built seven cotton spinning mills. And they didn't just build those, they built a series of dams and aqueducts to supply the water wheels with adequate water to actually run them. And they had even more, the highest mills on the entire river. And so they were, you know, set. They should have had uninterrupted power for their seven mills. But there was a problem. Further up on the hill, there was a dissolute British lord named Lord Byron who lived on his estate of Newstead Priory. And Lord Byron was not the sort of lord who wanted to, you know, make cotton mills and get rich. 
He loved to make ornamental ponds, where he held mock naval battles with his servant. And whenever Lord Byron would make a, a big gigantic pond out of the river water so he could have a, a big folly with his servants and pretend to be an admiral, the flow of water to the Robinson Seven cotton mills would trickle down. Now, the Robinsons wanted that water, and they sued him in court, but they wanted a backup plan. And their backup plan was to get a bunch of steam engines from Bolton and Watt, the big steam engine makers, so that if they lost and did not get the water power that they needed, they could, as a stopgap, use steam power to pump the water back over the water wheels. Like I said, these steam engines were inefficient, and they were only popular because coal remained cheap. And there's a little bit of a funky feedback loop here that let coal remain cheap. First, coal mines to get deeper needed steam engines to pump out the water. So the cheapness of coal over the 18th century is due to the steam engine, and in some way the steam engine is due to the cheapness of coal. But the cheapness of coal is also due to the improvement of land and sea transportation. Coal is incredibly bulky. It doesn't have that high of a value by weight. And so it's really expensive to carry long distances. To get long distance coal trade, you need really well-developed uh, infrastructure like canals and roads and wagonways and sea lanes that allow people to ship bulk goods for cheap. These were developed in the 18th century, especially things like uh, the turnpike system and canal mania of the 1760s, and this allowed coal to remain cheap and be cheap in places where coal was not mined. So we can imagine, you know, a map of Britain with all of the little coal seams, you know, as little dots, and each coal seam has a circle around it. And that circle we can imagine as the places where it made sense to use steam engines to do stuff. Now, every time that coal gets cheaper, those circles get bigger. And every single time somebody figures out a new way to make a steam engine do something, those circles get bigger still. And as the steam engines get more efficient, those circles grow bigger. And the story of the 18th century and the 19th century is those circles getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until they really surround the entire Earth. But that wouldn't happen unless you could use the steam engine to make things move. We already discussed kind of a, a jury-rigged solution to this, where you would get a, a pumping engine pumping water over a water wheel. That worked, but it was really inefficient. To get the next part of the story, we have to talk about that big, gigantic world historical engineering genius, James Watt. He's a man so important that he has become a symbol for an actual force of nature. The watt is a unit of power that you will often see on light bulbs, and the watt is named after James Watt. He also invented the unit of measurement that you hear on car commercials, horsepower, that he used to measure his steam engines because people would know, you know, how much power a horse actually had. And Watt would point at his steam engines and be like, look, this one is like 50. 
50 horses, which was really exciting for people. But if you met Watt when he was young, you would not think that he would be this person who almost every British schoolboy would have to memorize facts about his life. He started off as an instrument maker in Scotland. Now, he made measuring equipment. He made rulers and scales for weighing. He made barometers uh, for measuring atmospheric pressure. And he made quadrants for navigators that let people, you know, measure the distances between things. Now, this was scientific. It required a ton of very detailed mechanical skill. It's really hard to make a ruler. I mean, if I asked you to get a board and make a ruler without a ruler, without any sort of tools, you probably wouldn't be able to do it, much less a Hadley's quadrant. But Watt did it. That was his job. And this was useful not just because there was this burgeoning scientific enlightenment everywhere. It, this was true. People did need barometers because they suddenly became fascinated for, with the atmospheric pressure of things. They did need rulers because they were getting more exact in, in their everyday lives. But people also thought that this sort of stuff was cool. There was a pleasure in exactitude. There was a kind of style of, you know, British empirical exactitude that people wanted to adopt and show off. And part of this came about in a culture of public curiosity. Uh, there were universities and clubs and associations where people would get together and make scientific demonstrations of things, like how to use Hadley's quadrant for stuff or how a barometer worked. These were like 18th century TED Talks. If you want to get a sense of how they actually looked, I'm going to post a couple pictures from Joseph Wright of Derby, the painter, who actually painted a couple of these scenes of scientific uh, uh, demonstration. He was actually friends with Watt as well, which makes him, you know, especially curious. So they have names like a philosopher lecturing on the orrery, which is a wonderful painting showing a scientist explaining a model of a solar system. Another is called An Experiment on a Bird in an Air Pump, which depicts an experiment that demonstrates the vacuum. You get a bird, you put it in a jar, you pump the air out of the jar, and then the bird dies. Well, this is horrifying to us, but for people in the 18th century, this proved the existence of this odd thing that they couldn't otherwise see. It proved the existence of air, that there is a thing that we're all in, that we breathe, that we need, and without it, we die. And that's really fascinating. Imagine seeing that for the first time and getting a sense of it. Well, Watt was immensely, deeply enmeshed in this. He was the guy who made the little instruments that the scientific demonstrators would demonstrate. He had a bunch of odd jobs. Uh, I do not want to make another Bay Area uh, uh, reference, but he was totally a member of the gig economy. I just heard all of you guys groan. I know, I'm sorry. But he did a bunch of little things for a lot of people. The important moment came in 1763, when the University of Glasgow who had a bunch of scientific instruments to show their students because it was cool, asked Watt to work on one of the most frustrating ones. It was a scale model of a Newcomen engine. 
You could get it going. It would pump once or twice, maybe in four or five times, but after that, it would splutter out and would not work at all. Now, this wasn't the fault of the folks in the University of Glasgow. No, it was really hard to make a Newcomen engine work. Uh, modern uh, engineers who try to make Newcomen engines and uh, even Watt engines to demonstrate them in museums and stuff recount that it's really you know, really tricky, even with modern tools, to make them go. And each engine was different. They're not like coming off of an assembly line. They're made by hand uh, for bespoke situations, and each one ended up having its own peculiarities. Furthermore, the scale model steam engine was using uh, bits of metal that were really huge for the scale model. You couldn't get a, uh, a tank with the right width of, of metal surrounding it when you shrank down the steam engine from 50 feet down to 5 feet. That just didn't work. And so Watt was really, you know, struggling a lot with a stacked deck. But what he did, he went back to his experience as a person who knew how to measure things. He measured everything. He measured how much steam the uh, steam engine was producing. He measured how much water it was using. He measured how much the piston was moving. And he figured out something really odd, that there was more water being used than there should, and more heat as well. It took more stuff to do the work than the uh, accepted theory of heat would predict. Now, this is because of something called latent heat, which we know about from high school physics class. Latent heat is the idea that it actually takes a little bit extra energy to make a thing go through a phase transition, to make a thing go from liquid to gas, say. So when you're heating up water in a, a your pot, it will heat up boop, 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 at a constant rate. But then when it gets to like 99 degrees, it will stop heating up. Once it gets into gas, then it will continue to heat up, but it takes a little bit of extra energy to move the liquid from liquid to gas. So Watt came up with an idea. Watt wanted to make a perfect engine, an engine where every single bit of steam was actually used, something that would be far more efficient than the clunky old Newcomen engines. And he thought about it for a really long time. There came to be one big quandary. For maximum efficiency, the cylinder had to be kept hot. Otherwise, you would be using all of the heat energy to be reheating it every single time. Remember, the cylinder has to be cooled down so that the steam could condense. However, for maximum power, you needed the cylinder to get extra cold because the power came from this, the, 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 the change in temperature. Watt's solution sounds really simple, but it was brilliant. Watt's solution was to make two cylinders, a separate condenser. One, a boiler that could be kept hot all the time. The second, a condenser that could be kept cold. This, along with a couple other inventions, like new pistons bored by the friend of James Watt and his financier John Bolton, named John Wilkinson, um, led to a doubling of the efficiency of the steam engine. 
just because of the separate condenser and a couple other things. This was a vast improvement. If you imagine that map of Britain with all of those little dots of coal seams with circles around them where it becomes useful to use steam power, they just doubled in size. But Walt wasn't done. Watt had been, you know, kind of hired by his patron, um, Matthew Bolton, to actually make the steam engine a replacement for a water wheel, to use a steam engine to make rotative power rather than just an up and down pumping engine. Matthew Bolton was this genius iron worker who had these next generation uh, iron factories in Soho where he made like lots of cool little doodads and he relied on the water power that came from nearby streams. And he was annoyed that his factories had to shut down whenever the stream just decided to stop. And so so Watt's original brief wasn't to make a really, really great uh, steam engine. His original brief, when he got all this money from Matthew Bolton, was to use a steam engine to make things move. It was super difficult, but Watt, over you know a long period of time, eventually made a new kind of steam engine that could make things move. The key to this is something called the sun and planet gear. Now, if you look at a picture of this online, and I encourage you to Google this because it's much easier to understand when you see it, the planet of the sun and planet gear moves up and down because of the piston action of the steam engine, but it revolves around a central sun gear that in turn turns the machine. This transmits the up and down motion of the piston to a rotative motion that you can actually use to make things. Another improvement that Watt made to the steam engine is the double acting piston. So in the original Newcomen engine, you're basically just getting power on the downstroke. Every single time that the piston moves up, it's not generating power, it's just being pulled by the weight of that big heavy thing at the far end of the bar. It only generates power when the piston is sucked down by the vacuum. Watt realized that he could improve the power of the machine and make a little bit more regular uh, 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 motion if he got steam to enter the piston at both ends. So at both ends of the movement, at the top and the bottom, you started to be able to get power. And this, of course, improved the actual power of the machine. And this wasn't enough because the steam engine wasn't regular. It was jerky. It was powered by a fire and by these weird valves and stuff. And so the motion that it produced was not even. This does not seem like a problem until you imagine what your car would be like if when you were driving it, the engine just kind of, you know, increased and decreased in power randomly because of the fire that was feeding it. To make things move in a way that you can actually, you know, use that movement for useful activities, you need that movement to be regular, especially in cotton spinning, where the quality of the fabric really, really depends on how regular you can get the threads to be. 
And so to solve this problem, Watt borrowed this idea called the governor. You might see it when you see a uh, you know sketch of a steam engine in your steampunk comic books because it looks so funny. There are these two balls that are held together by a little wishbone wire, and when the steam engine moves, they spin. Because of the centrifugal motion between them, they actually spin apart as the spinning increases in speed. Now the governor then takes this motion and uses it to close a throttle. So the faster the spinning the governor does, the smaller the throttle is. And this can be really, really minutely uh, 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 controlled by the engineer. What this means is once the governor gets going, you can actually get much more smooth power because if the steam engine decided to go really, really quickly, then the governor would uh, split apart because of the centrifugal motion, and that would then tighten the throttle, which would decrease the power that's actually provided to the machine. Now, finally, there's one big invention that Watt did that I cannot understand at all because I'm not an engineer. And it has to do with the linkage between the piston and the bar that actually moves. And this is called a connecting beam with four-part linkage. People call this one of Watt's masterpieces. Watt himself said that he is, quote, more proud of the parallel motion of the new steam engine than any other invention I have ever made. Um, from the wiki describing it, it says, quote, the uh, connecting bar allows a rod moving straight up and down to transmit motion to a beam moving in an arc without putting sideways strain on the rod. Sounds good enough. I cannot understand why that's important or why he really needed it for this particular machine. But according to a lot of engineers, it is a really important development. So these two inventions of Watt, making the steam engine more efficient and allowing it to make rotative power, allowed the steam engine to spread to everywhere where people needed cheap energy. By the 1800s, Bolton and Watt had made about 500 steam engines. 38% of them were for pumping, and 62% of them were rotative. Most of them were for textiles. Now, most of these steam engines were used for cotton spinning, which we'll talk about next episode. But they were also used for a wide variety of things. People were figuring out how to use the cheap energy provided by coal via the steam engine to do a bunch more stuff. Uh, often in rural areas, people started to use steam engines to run threshing machines, which was a really, you know, time and an energy intensive process of spinning a big gigantic drum to separate out the tasty bit of the wheat from the chaff. In America, where labor was much more expensive and often hard to control, and also had plentiful coal, steam engines started to be quickly used in running cotton gins and making a machine go that would separate out cotton from seed. They were also used in cane crushers, which was an essential part of the backbreaking and slave-driven labor of the sugar plantation. They were used in rice mills and sawmills. They started to be used in this new kind of uh, slave-intensive American capitalism that would soon, you know, after Britain, take over the world. Now later, after the Bolton and Watt patent on the steam engine stopped being enforced, 
Bolden and Watt made their money from the steam engine via a patent. Everybody who used Watt's fantastic inventions had to pay a certain amount of money to Bolton and Watt for the privilege. Now, that certain amount of money was one-third of the savings on fuel that they would have spent if they were using a new Kuhlman engine for the same task. But this also kind of stifled invention because anybody who wanted to improve Watt's invention had to ask his permission to, you know, tinker with it. You couldn't get a Bolton and Watt uh, steam engine and then, you know, hack it to do something new. You had to just get Bolton and Watt to help you out. And this was a problem because James Watt was afraid. He was afraid of high pressure steam. The steam pressures in the Watt engine were actually really, really low. But it turns out that high pressure steam is far more efficient and can lead to the creation of much smaller steam engines, which then can be put on machines that might be able to run themselves, dot, 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 spoiler alert, railways. The development of the high-pressure steam engine happens in Cornwall, once the Bolton and Watt patent ends. Now, if we imagine that map of Britain again, showing all the little dots of, of coal fields and all of the expanding circles where it makes sense to build steam engines, the area around Cornwall is actually at the very edge. It's far away from coal. It has a ton of mines that mine really, really expensive metals like copper and tin. And so they use steam engines to pump things, but coal is still quite expensive. It's quite hard to get the bulky coal to the mines where they're actually needed. Once the Bolton and Watt patent is ended, then people in Cornwall start to experiment with new ways of doing things. And the really important thing here is they start to use incredibly high-pressure steam. By 1835, uh, people at the time estimated that the improved steam engines were saving 100,000 tons of coal per year compared with 1814. So why is this all important? The steam engines allowed the cheap energy of coal to start to replace the expensive energy of people and animals. First, this was done with stuff that just needed raw power. It's hard to get power. It's hard to lift heavy things. It's hard to move water. It's hard to blow up mountains. But with the condensed power that the steam engine allows, then you can move water, goods, things, people a lot easier. But then with the rotative steam engine that Watt developed, people start to be able to use the steam engine to do more stuff, to actually replace the delicate use of human dexterity. Machines started to replace people. A good handloom weaver, said a, uh, a contemporary observer, could make about two pieces of 24 yards cloth um, every single week. In 1823, a steam loom weaver could weave seven pieces of that cloth. In 1826, um, a steam loom weaver could make two looms work at once and could weave 12 to 15 pieces of said cloth. 
1833, a steam loom weaver at a new steam loom, assisted only by a girl of 12, could run four looms at once and weave 18 to 20 pieces a week. So in only about hmm, 20 years, you got the increase of an individual's power from making two pieces of 24-yard cloth to 20. That's a, you know, an increase of over 10 times. This is insane, but it also led to a hollowing out of labor. This is what we call the Industrial Revolution, the replacement of machines and energy for human labor. To do this, you require new ways of organizing people, new ways of buying and selling things that we call capitalism. The next episode, we're going to dig into what this actually means for people who had to work in the new machine-heavy fossil fuel-powered industries. We're going to look at the two first big factory industries, cotton and potteries. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks very much to Duncan Barton for the images and Jonathan Lear for the music. I owe you guys infinite beer. Thank you for tweeting about us, for sharing us on social media, for messaging me. You can tweet at me at at MackieTeacher, M-A-C-K-I-E-T-E-A-C-H-E-R. It really helps me to know that you're out there listening. I will be back hopefully sooner than a couple months, um, but I will be coming back to you from England, very close to the archives with, you know, 18th century parchment on my fingers. See you then.